Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson in Hollywood. And Ann, I have to tell you, it feels like a quieter time right now. Neither of us is off in some exotic locale covering some big film festival. And yet at the same time, it also feels sort of like the calm before the storm. I mean, just yesterday there were some strong reports about certain Cannes possibilities. We already know one movie is going to be at Cannes. That's the latest Mad Max film from George Miller, which uh, is actually opening in the U.S. just a few days later. But it just shows you that we're already into Cannes season. So Yeah, it looks like we can expect the next Woody Allen, you know, come toujours. You know, I get annoyed with them sometimes. The Pixar film is in. A Pixar movie, you know, 3D, uh, you know, the latest. but but I I really I really hope that they take some chances and that they you know I I, I could see that they're going to probably do you know Todd Haynes Carol which we've been waiting for 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 a while with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara you know and I'm hearing wonderful things about Dennis Villeneuve's new movie Sicario with Emily Blunt and Benicio del Toro. But of course, um, some of the best films are the ones that nobody's going to be talking about. I mean, if you look at for example what Variety did, which was drop a massive laundry list of canned possibilities. You know, the the deeper you look at it, beyond the kind of obvious stuff. I mean, Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special, or even, you know, Natalie Portman's directorial debut, which was shot in Jerusalem. I mean, these are things that are going to be interesting and talked about. But the deeper you go into it, the more international stuff that, you know, some people are going to know about, some people aren't going to know about. That's really where the bigger equation is. I mean, these are movies that, you know, at some point somebody's going to discover because if they're at cam they get a certain sort of exposure and that's how they stand out you know i mean i'm looking at things like santiago mitre's la patota or pablo trapero's the clan i mean these are great latin american filmmakers who if you've been watching their stuff at film festivals their names mean something to you but if they wind up in competition which means they could win the palme d'or or they could you know enter a totally different level of exposure and that's it's interesting to see if they go, you know, with the usual suspects like Sorrentino or or Moretti right. or or Odiard or one you know, assumes a lot or, of those are kind of just in by default because of the way Can operates. The question well, is we'll who, see. I right. hope they take some sh- chances and and you know anoint some some new. You know, maybe they'll get Jeff Nichols into the competition and and you know maybe maybe Davis Guggenheim's Malala project. Yeah. You know, will get into into cop. You know, they get, put in a document. You know, they, it took them a long time to come around to animation finally, you yeah, know? that's true. And, and the idea of, uh, you know, Mark Osborne's The Little Prince being in there is kind of promising. But the, the documentary... Or Gus Van Zandt could, could come back with, with The Sea of Trees with Matthew McConaughey or your favorite guy from Greece, Yorgos Lanthimos. Well, yeah, know? we've been hearing about The Lobster for the longest time. And, you know, Dogtooth which was uh, kind of his his first big movie to get a lot of attention, did start in in certain regards, so it would make sense for them to bring him back. And this this movie has cast. It's an English-language film, so there's always a possibility. You know, but I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, it's just when I go to Cannes or any other film festival, 
I'm just automatically less excited by people I've heard of before than I am by certain unknown variables that hold potential. And maybe this that's just because I see too many things. This is where we've debated this before. This is where you and I are different, you know, in a funny way. I, I, I find that I, 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 I'm unwilling. You know, it's, the thing about Cannes is you can just as easily go in and see a really bad movie, right? So I'm going to wait for, for the word on the street to tell me to go check out this, you know, like I remember discovering Regatos one year, you know, the word was so great on, on his, his first film, his, the Mexican director, you know, and I went and saw it and it was great, you know, and that's wonderful, but I'm not going to be the one who goes and checks it out in right. the first place, See, I'm, you know, unless it's in competition, of course, you know, right, if exactly. it's in competition, then somebody else is, has declared that it is that important that I have to see it. I mean, I think that's an interesting way of, of sort of using the, the festival dynamic to filter things through, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately because the new director's new film series is going on right now in Lincoln Center and MoMA, and actually the one of the chair chair members of, of new directors and a longtime curator, Yitta Jensen, unfortunately passed away this past Monday. So sorry to hear that. But, She's a uh, woman. But, uh, you know, one of the things that people like Yitta and, by extension, new directors did was rather than using sort of uh, a certain a certain way of of saying this is an established person who should be on your radar. They would drop certain hints, you know, that you should start with this kind of movie, and it, it the the narrative moves away from these are major filmmakers to these are some filmmakers you should try out. And in fact, this year's new directors, new films, is really interesting in that respect, and one of the better examples of the programming in a long time because there's almost no stars in it there's there's not a ton of stuff that stands out on paper and you really have to just sort of trust the curatorial agenda which is to show an international showcase of lots of different filmmakers from around the world you know and that's what's really interesting to me and and that's what i think you know makes the job interesting because we tend to look backwards through film history at movies that are great in a sort of self-evident way. And you forget that a lot of times the best ones come out of nowhere. You know, I was, I was thinking about this because I know you've been checking out the TCM classic film series and, and that just started. And a lot of those movies, you know, if it's a studio film, obviously to some degree when it landed, it got a lot of attention because the studio could do that. But at the same time, it's not always guaranteed that these kinds of films are going to be perceived the way that they are decades later. I mean, Sound it, of Music is a classic, if you like, no, you know, example because it actually was very badly reviewed <laughs> because right. it was perceived as this this, and it's it's still interesting. I I I went to the opening night last night of the TCM classic film festival here in LA and it was at the, you know, Chinese and it was this gorgeous 4k, you know, elaborate restoration, which we wrote about on the, on the blog yesterday. So I, if you're interested in that, you should check out, uh, Bill Desowitz's piece, but it is so beautiful and, you know, three hours long intermission, incredible, um, you know, incredible music and, and, uh, it holds up really well. I will defend the sound of music to to the death, but it is still one of the most popular movies of all time. And it's sort of fascinating to, uh, you know, parse, you know, what are the elements of that movie that make it so uh, 
timeless and enduring you know why do you have a do you have a, a thought about that or do you hate the movie I don't hate the movie the way that I know some, you know, maybe snobby. People just think of it as a treacly sort yeah, of sure. thing. It's well, not. The problem is that anything that anything that is, you know, overly sentimental often doesn't age well. Um, it's it's a very uh, colorful and um, affable musical in certain ways, and and I think uh, even even in spite of sort of sort of the darker elements of, of the plot. There, there is something that I that I think feels almost uh, to some people who want to you know want movies that really challenge them almost uh, simplistic in a way that, that there's a lot of surfaces in play. But at the same time, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about the sound of music is that it's not Cleopatra. You know, I mean, if you think about it from a historical standpoint, it was maybe the the last good example of a studio musical during that era doing what it's supposed to do, which is a very careful balance of, you know, some sophisticated situations and very kind of superficial, more sort of basic appealing factors, you know, and so... The, no. the way that it, it was interesting listening to Plummer and Andrews uh, talk about it last night because they they were basically yeah you had this incredible photography of the Alps and there was a lot of texture there was a lot of you know location shooting and and you I mean, see nobody that. can discount that that there's a certain you know you know fundamental technique in play when, I think so yes. you know I mean they, but absolutely that, the guy that. was an editor Robert Wise sure. and you it, can see these amazing montages that he put together but also the very very clever ways that you know you enter into each song and, you know you know there's a kind of gradual you know people don't just break into song in, in an instant or how the the reverend mother does her big climb every mountain number almost entirely in the dark sure. you know, I was just catching all these sort of elements that I had and also the idea that that both uh, that there's a heavy duty romance in there too and that both um, Maria and the captain are damaged goods who have to somehow find each other and, and bring out the best in each other it's a classic Cinderella class romance in, in many ways no question about it you I know. guess what's less exciting to me about a movie like that is that it because it's so as you say classic I mean that term is obviously so overused but it waited yeah it's weighted in a way that's less exciting to me. I mean, I was really happy to see on the agenda for the TCM Film Festival the Ernst Lubitsch film, The Smiling Lieutenant, from 31, with Maurice Chevalier and uh, Claudette Colbert sort of in this really interesting love triangle with Miriam Hopkins because it's... Uh, it's just so it's it's loaded with this innuendo that still feels fresh today, and there are there are some great songs in it and so forth. But the Lubitsch touch is oh, what we love to me, Lubitsch. I mean, we love Lubitsch. But Nanachka. see that that's that's the interesting thing about you know like the idea of a classic movie that I think if you, you see it today and it doesn't feel like it's just recalling a different era, it it just feels like a, a great movie that transcends its era with its greatness, you know, that, so I get more excited about a movie like that on some level, that there's well, an edge to it. it's interesting to see, uh, how, uh, Criterion took a hard day's night and, 
turned it into a national event. Now, you don't get that every day. You don't get the Beatles' 50th anniversary, Richard Lester, you know, a movie that was so influential and, and affected so many other movies after it. it. It was. It's almost as though, you know, the music video was created in this, in this movie, you know. I mean, Steven Soderbergh has devoted, you know, incredible amounts of time to the brilliance of, of, of Richard Lester. But um, uh, they, it's an interesting paradigm that you can take Take um, a movie, put it in over 100 theaters, make a national press event out of it, get it online at the same time, have a Blu-ray, have a theatrical, you know, and it's 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 a sort of they're doing a massive thing with with Sound of Music as well, and it's 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 a business. In other words, the, the you know with the right properties. Um, the studios can dust off uh, a project and make an enormous amount of money out of it. Sure. I mean, that was one of the great innovations at uh, Film Forum with Bruce Goldstein. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like that really that was a really important model in the repertory scene was basically going to a studio and saying, look, if you spend the money on creating a new print for this thing, we'll give it a one-week run or whatever it is, and it's going to do well. And that is actually proof that these movies can continue to have a life, not only in the theaters, but it trickles down to the way that people discover them in other platforms. And so, you know, actually, I think it's a great time for the, the concept of classic cinema to be more deeply understood and our our capacity to look at movies that could be classics and filmmakers who are creating classics is, is in a really interesting stage for that reason. You know, uh, Noah Baumbach has a new movie opening this week, While We're Young, and 20 years ago, Kicking and Screaming, his first film, uh, came out, and so you could look at Noah Baumbach as somebody who has created certain modern classics and yet at the same time is still that's making a bit, movies That's today. a bit much, I would say. <laughs> well, but it's, it sort of depends on where you're looking at it. I mean, it's been 10 years since Squid and the Whale. You have people who are maybe... Which I love, which is a, it probably is his best film still, although I would argue for Mistress America being the best thing he's done since Squid and the Whale. I, I, I like uh, While We're Young very much and it's very personal and, and autobiographical in many ways. And, oh, by the way, Eric, you're the one who told me that, um, I hope I'm not outing you in some hideous way, uh, that Joe Swanberg may have been the model for, for the young guy. Played it's by already Andy out Driver. there. I, yeah, I, but he denies it. He completely denies yeah, it. Yeah, but, Absolutely okay. denies I it. Mean, Even though he knows that he mentored Joe Swanberg. Just being <laughs> yeah. purely a spectator here who's, who's been watching this stuff unfold, you can read it in, in, in the individual pieces here from the movies and, and, and the people who are involved in these movies to the specific characters in While We're Young, which has Ben Stiller as this 40-something filmmaker, a little bit nervous about sort of losing his touch, this worshipful young guy played by Adam Driver who turns out to kind of want to you know, usurp the older filmmakers' career momentum. And the, the word wife. opportunistic applies, okay. but okay. he's ambitious. And, and so and part of what Baumbach is saying is that he's that character more than he's the Ben Stiller character. That well, he, His neurosis is that he's ambitious, not that he's blocked. He no, doesn't seem to be blocked. He, you know, and, but I mean, there is something really telling in the way in which these characters sort of fit the, the real scenario right down to the fact that the Adam Driver's wife makes ice cream, which is something that Joe Swamry's wife did at some point. I mean, I, you know, in any case, what's interesting about that tidbit of gossip is that it captures to some degree, I think, what somebody like Noah Baumbach has to wrestle with, which is 
he is always on the danger or, or sort of always in danger of becoming some kind of a brand um, because his style. Well, is he's so a writer, re- director, right. auteur who writes and directs movies that are very reflective of himself and his right. life. Yeah, but it's and also something it. Woody Allen ish, but not. Which is why Mistress America is so interesting because he's taking it in a comedic direction with Greta Gerwig as he did with well, Chris, but the, uh, the point that as I would a collaborator, make, that, a full collaborator. But, but the point that I would I would like to make here is is that as as a somebody who can become a brand, they can also very easily become a punchline, and right. so there is a certain danger. You know, I mean, look at what happened with Woody Allen. You know, I mean, is anybody really pumped about an, another, you know, what is it? Is like 90th movie at Cannes this year? I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's like whatever it is. It's just it feels to some degree like, you know, there's no effort there, even if there is. You know, Well, you so. never know. You never know when he's going to pull it out of a hat these days, I would say. I mean, I was a, a defender of Midnight in Paris, I thought that was the best thing he had done in a really long time. I was delighted by that film. So, um, I, I, you know, give, give it a chance, you know, I mean, we'll see. Um, is it, does it deserve a slot? It can, you know, they're going to take Woody Allen as the author. That's their thing. That's what they do. But going back to while we're young, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting moment to sort of reevaluate Noah Baumbach because with Squid and the Whale coming out 10 years ago, you have people who maybe got into movies when they were 15 years old. Sorry to say it, but I mean, that make that makes them, you know, in their mid-20s now and getting their filmmaking careers going, they may see this as, you know, a major movie that influences, influenced, you know, the way that they want to tell stories. You look at While We're Young, I think what's really interesting about it is that it's a move outside of the kinds of movies he was making at that time. What Squid and the Whale represented as a kind of, you know, indie movie about a, with a certain kind of angst to it. You know, while we're young, is sort of uh, superimposing onto a much broader kind of framework. It's a it's a much more uh, accessible comedy. It almost feels like a commercial comedy on some level. While we're young, yeah. I'll be curious to see. I would argue that Mistress America will be the bigger hit. I see while we're young staying. Inside the the you know the usual uh, parameters, uh, I hope it does well. It's a smart, delightful, fun, you know, movie. But but I I actually think I actually give Mistress America credit for for broadening. Um, I don't know how do I say this. It it is a it is a skillfully uh, entertainingly made you know entertaining comedy that is harder than it looks. Yeah, I think well, I think they both are, and they and they they work in unity, which is why it's so interesting that they're both coming out this year, and you know that Mistress America is going to get a pretty wide release through through Fox Searchlight. Is yeah, also I think it will be the bigger the bigger film. But if yeah. people see While We're Young, I do think it's almost like a prelude to the next one. You know, it's, but it's also him alone as opposed to him and Greta, and I I I love the idea that that you know. If Woody Allen used used you know Diane Keaton and 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 um, <laughs> Mia Farrow as his muses, if you like, um, uh, here you have the filmmaker actually 
using his muse as a writer and and giving her credit for for that and and i love the way he describes waiting for for the pages to arrive from greta gerwig you know is as if he's i mean he's obviously in love with her and delighted with her and creatively inspired by her and the idea of her playing these parts so uh it, it's an interesting change in the in, in the way things are done and it makes sense too because on some level it's 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 allowed him to transition into a different stage by having a new collaborator that you know so he doesn't seem like he's just sort of repeating himself i mean there's a, a greater element of surprise now for Bounty I agree. Dad, the, I couldn't agree more. And and uh, I'll be curious to see how these two films fare with with audiences. So speaking of of new filmmakers and, and new stages, another another movie that was in New Directors' new films that's actually opening this week is one we've both seen and should probably talk about for a few minutes because it's it's one that I've I've heard a lot of different reactions to. It was actually at Cannes last year and it won in certain regard and uh it's a it's a really interesting film in some ways i don't know if it totally works it's called white god so it was a hungarian submission for the oscar it was not shortlisted so it's essentially it's about this 13 year old girl and her dog hagen and the dog basically once is he's separated from the girl ends up living on the streets and kind of leading this uprising. It's like a homeless dog. It's, it's a little bit like Lady and the Tramp in the sense that he hooks up with this other girl dog. I mean, yeah. It's really relevant. Well, and then, but I, I would describe it more as... Uh, as uh, Homeward Bound meets the birds or something. Cause There's a terrible element because he, the dog becomes trained by vicious, brutal, horrible people drugged and trained to become a killer. Yeah, and and what's what's crazy about it is how much the movie really does star the dog and and other dogs like him. I mean, it, it really does become sort of a series of directed performances with these animals. And I, I felt like the third act where everything kind of devolves into chaos with this canine uprising, not a spoiler, it's a big part of the premise, uh, it didn't deliver in the way that it needed to. It didn't feel like it was quite fierce enough you know I, I didn't feel like the the sense of peril was really there you couldn't totally tell what was happening always i mean the, it's not violent as in the way you might think but it but it's a really interesting experience and it also isn't as horrifying people are afraid to see the movie because they think dogs are, are going to be hurt or, or, right. or it's going to be too upsetting. And, and it's so obviously a fable. So right. obviously the, the dogs are being used in the way that they were used in, in Jack London novels or, sure. or black beauty or something. I mean, it's, or George Orwell. I mean, this is not literal. We're supposed right. to recognize these dogs as being, you know, standing in for, for, for human beings. Yeah. The allegorical and, element is fun to play around with. It's the same way it's it smart. would be. I think yeah. it's a smart, I agree. I think it's a smart movie, but also just logistically what the filmmaker had sure. to deal with in terms of wrangling. These are real dogs. These are not CG dogs. So I suspect, Eric, that part of what you're uh, recognizing is that it, it, the kind of tension that you need, you know, with a highly edited kind of um, uh, controlled uh, uh, sequence. They, they had real dogs running down the street. Sure. And know? so for the director, Cornel Mondrusco, you know, he, you, you just think about, well, if this is a first-time filmmaker and, and this is what he can pull off, you know, there's Very something. Very smart. To, yeah, yeah, there's something here. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I'm not sure what to make of the movie overall. 
it's harder for me to recommend it than it is for some of the other movies opening this week. Like, really? I mean, yeah. I think, I think, honestly, I think that this is this is a major filmmaker. It's smart, uh, smart ideas. You've never seen a movie like this uh, before, and and it catches you up. You get caught up with the girl. You get caught up with the dog. It 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 wrap it rather, and it's visually very sophisticated. Um, anyway, I would recommend it. Well, my, well, let me put it another way. I mean, there. There are a few other movies opening this week that I would recommend slightly more. There's a, a terrific little film noir called Man from Reno from a director named Dave Boyle. You're going to hear a lot more about this guy in the coming years. I would call it a, a classic in the making because it's got this this really neat sort of uh, plot to it, like very understated detective story, very classical in certain ways, but it's also it's got a mixture of American and Japanese characters and a terrific lead performance by Pepe Serna, who people may know from Brian De Palma movies and things like that over the years. Buckaroo Banzai. Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> so, that, you know, I see things like that, and I'm like, well, how many people even know this movie exists, let alone that it's in theaters this weekend? And White God, you know, is, is also something of a discovery, but in the world we live in, you know, discovery is relative. So... I guess, you know, look through the release calendar and, and keep looking is sort of my, my advice to people because there, there's always more things to check out. And I guess if you're a dog person, White God is a good place to start. I was having an interesting conversation on Twitter today with somebody about, you know, whether or not this movie would work if it was Cats. But uh, perhaps Ew, that would be a little too fierce. I don't fierce. know about that. They don't tend to work too well together. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't the Rudyard Kipling short story called The Cat Who Walked By Himself? Yeah, exactly. It's um, they they have a different sort of creepier element in play, but I want to get creeped out. That's sort of my thing. I mean, I've I'm, I've got plans. Eric, to, mm. <laughs> I've got plans to go to a horror film festival in a couple of weeks in uh, Estes Park, Colorado, and stay in a the Stanley Hotel where where Stephen King dream, dreamed up the. Good shiny. for you! How cool is that? I I, I want to be scared when I go when I go to these things. You know, it's a it needs to surround you. It, it's not just about the movies. It's about the environment so uh what are, what are you looking ahead to and we've got not just can right around the corner but other things well, i that am are gonna sooner. go to uh cinema con which is in las vegas which is the annual exhibitors convention and it's an interesting time you and i have been talking about a number of 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 things that are you know going on in terms of uh the way theaters and and uh the whole question of 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 the theatrical paradigm and and theaters versus VOD is fascinating to me and definitely coming to to a head with what happened on Snowpiercer and it follows and and so I want to get closer to the ground and talk to a number of people about this and and some of the people that I've met at the art house convergence as well but this is not the art house indie side of the business this is the big theater i mean they're there but this is very much the big theater chains and the studios go in and show them uh their products for the year so that's always fun fun to see and fun to to do get on the ground and do some do some uh good reporting well we'll have plenty of that to talk about next week we got furious seven coming out and a bunch of other stuff to look at. you're gonna see that i'm hoping to i'm gonna go uh, i'm gonna go i hear mixed things though i'm a little nervous you know look how many people do you know who have seen all of them? Not me. Yeah, so I guess it's sort of—it's not quite a cult thing, not not on that scale. But no, it's hardly. A, you know, it's an interesting story. I like to story. praise them for being one of the first 
Um, I remember Stacy Snyder talking about this when they first made the first one uh, at Universal, lo these many years ago. It was diverse. It was a cast of many different colors and sexes, and they made sure that Michelle Rodriguez was in there. And that is why, that is the real reason why this movie is so huge all over the world with men and women. Well, it's also interesting to compare it to, you know, the era when a movie like Sound of Music uh, came out. You know, it's a, there's a different kind of paradigm that fuels a real mainstream kind of movie now. And the fact that they've made seven of these and they're such, it's such a dependable franchise in terms of anticipation and, and quality for the people who are into this kind of movie... You know, it really shows you that, that there's something about the, the need for that kind of, uh, that not just diversity, but, but just sort of payoff. That's really well, crucial. they've managed to keep it authentic. I think what's um, I've, I've I've listened to them talk about it a little bit, and and what strikes me there, Vin Diesel, and the others are a t- are part. They consider themselves to be part of the filmmaking team. That they're collaborators, and they care about it so deeply. They're so invested in it. There's something um, genuine about it. It isn't. It doesn't feel like oh, the studio is just putting out another uh, ripoff. Yeah, you know? I, I they, they've managed doubt. to stay true to the to the essence of what that that uh, franchise is yeah. about. I mean, I highly doubt Vin Diesel telling people he named his, his daughter Paulina after Paul Walker as, as a marketing stunt, you know? I don't there's think a, so, there's no. There's something real there. They uh, loved each other. Yeah. Yep. Well, Fair enough. next week we'll, we'll talk Furious 7. Maybe it's a modern classic. Who knows? <laughs> Hope springs eternal, Eric. <laughs> Till then, thanks, Bye. Anne. Bye.